Anyway, today we're starting a new series called He Said What? And the idea behind this series is to explore some of the interesting phrases of Jesus and the interesting phrases that Jesus actually spoke in his own words. So we as Christians believe that we have the recorded statements of Jesus to the best of our knowledge uh, in the New Testament. And from the New Testament, there are some very specific statements that many of us find hard to choke down. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 21. The same story can be found in Mark chapter 10 and verse 17, and it can also be found in Luke chapter 18 and verse 22. So we have the Bible set up as two testaments or um, two different storylines. The first is called the Old Testament. That's a little more than half of your Bible, not quite two-thirds. And then the second half is the New Testament. It starts with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic Gospels, meaning that the meat of it, where he tells his disciples it's easier for a rich man to enter the eye of a needle, the sarcastic language of the rabbinical teacher, it's easier for a rich man to get through the eye of a needle than it is for him to get into heaven. Jesus must be speaking on that construct that we should give away all of our prized possessions. If you hold something dear, near and dear to your heart, then you obviously need to give it away. If you have a lot of zeros in your bank account, Jesus is demanding of you, give it away. Just to calm your fears, I'm not going to ask for another offering. We're done with that today. There'll be a box at the door, though, when you're on your way out. Give as God leads. I'm joking. There isn't a box back there. Is Jesus a socialist? Is he literally saying money is bad? Is he saying that giving to the poor is good? Is he saying that rich people are bad because obviously the only way they built wealth was through nefarious means? Is Jesus saying that poor people are good? Well, if Jesus is so intent on bringing up the impoverished, it doesn't bode well for some statements he makes later. You know, they were asking him at one point a question about the poor. God, shouldn't we give to the poor? And he's in the midst of, a, of almost this religious ritualistic moment. Someone is at his feet worshiping, and they're thinking, shouldn't we give to the poor? And he says, shut up. The poor will always be with you. Well, that doesn't bode well for this scripture. What is he saying then? What is the full story? What is he representing by this concept of sell all of your goods, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me? What is he actually saying to us? What is the context? Well, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16, if you want to start, we'll go there. So this young man, this young ruler has a request of Jesus. A man approached Jesus, and if you have it on the screen, I pulled it from the Jerusalem or the, uh, the Jewish New Testament, and it says, Yeshua said, or this young man approached Yeshua and said, Rabbi, what good thing should I do in order to obtain eternal life? This man actually said, what good thing? This what good thing phrase is what Jesus will reference in just a few verses or just a few statements, a mitzvah. We'll get to what that means in a moment. Jesus responded in verse 17, why are you asking me about good? There is only one who is good. But if you want to obtain eternal life, observe the mitzvah. Observe the mitzvah, the law, the good deeds. There were 613 laws in the Jewish culture. If you want a list of what those look like, go to JewFAQs or JewFacts.com and you can look at all two or 613 laws that they had to live by and that any practicing Jew today tries and strives to live by. In context, the mitzvah was just a good deed. So this man comes to him and says, Jesus, what good deed, what mitzvah do I need to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, why are you talking to me about anything good? There's only one person good and that's God. 
Why do you assume that I know anything of a good nature? Because there's only one person who's really good, and that's our Father in heaven. He was establishing himself as someone who understood the rule and ritual of the time. And then he points to the man and says, all right, you want to know? Keep and observe the mitzvah. Do all the good things that you've been told to do from your ancestors. Keep the 613. And then the man asked him, well, which one? Which one of these 613 mitzvahs do I have to keep to in order to obtain eternal life? Jesus or Yeshua said, don't murder. This is in verse 19 or verse 18. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus highlighted the top tier commands. This is what every good Jew would have followed. But he was setting this young guy up. The young man said to him, I have kept all these. Where do I fall short? So we have to understand a little bit about our context here. We're talking about ancient Near East context. We're talking about a man who grew up in Judaism. And he has a very keen understanding of what it would have been to obtain eternal life for that age and that day. He already knew that he had one check mark against his name that granted him access to heaven. It was the idea that he was rich in that ancient Near East culture. Any Jewish man that found himself of substance and wealth was obvious that God was shining his face on him. He had the blessing of the Lord, so obviously God was with him. The only, the, the secondary way to assume your place in heaven, that you would finally find heaven when this life was over, to assure that heaven was your reward after you had lived this life to its fullest, was to keep the mitzvah, to do all the good things. So this young man comes to Jesus knowing that he's got a wealth of riches and says, what must I do to inherit heaven? And Jesus says, keep the mitzvah. Why do you call me good? Because there's only one that's good. Why are we discussing good things? Shouldn't you understand the logic here that it's not just about what is good, but it's about what is heavenly. And you have to understand a different perspective from what he was speaking to this young man. It's about understanding what heaven means as good, what the heavenly construct is as good. And Jesus says, fine. You want to know what it is? Keep these few things. And the man shouts back to him, okay, I've already done that. And then we come to our focus verse of the day. Jesus says to him, Jesus said to the young man, where are we at here? I got all, I got all out of place. The young man said to him, I've kept all these from the, from the time I was young. Where do I fall short? Jesus answered him, if you're serious about reaching the goal, if you're serious about getting into heaven, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have riches in heaven. Then come and follow me. The man's response in verse 22, but the young man heard this and he went away sad because he was wealthy. Is the idea that money is bad, is that what Jesus is pointing to? No. Just blanket statement, no. Full stop. It's not because money's bad. Is it because this man's heart was just simply on finances and riches and he couldn't give up his riches? He was too tied to his bank account? His heart and his wallet had a silver strung cord that he couldn't get rid of. No, that wasn't it either. Because in order to observe all the mitzvah, in order to love your neighbor as yourself, you had to be a giving and charitable person. No, Jesus challenged at the core what this gentleman thought would gain him access to heaven. Jesus challenged at its core the social construct. This is what it looks like to be a good, devout, religious person. You have gained a sense of wealth and you have kept all the rules. 
Most of us today in our Western context feel the same way. We're in the richest nation on the planet. If you have more than two pairs of shoes, you're amongst the 1% of the elite of the world's population. You might not feel it. You might not think it. There might be more month at the end of your paycheck than there is money at times. But the fact is, because you live here in these United States, we are at a place uh, that is so much more elevated than the countries around the world. I hear all of this talk about uh, the idea of the coronavirus breaking out. And I think we should be very well informed. I don't think we should be live, uh, led and live in fear. However, when the Ebola virus broke out, I was in Sierra Leone, Africa, the literal epicenter of the Ebola breakout, just a few weeks before that disease just plagued that country and much of the surrounding countries there in the continent of Africa. I didn't worry about it. I didn't wonder if I'm going to get infected. I knew that God was on my side. He called me to go. I went and did what he asked me to do, and I knew that God would keep me protected. However, I didn't use my Americanness and my religious ideas to prove to God that I was worthy of protection. I just knew because he's Abba, Father, that he would have his grace and mercy on my life. This rich young ruler was being challenged. Though his wealth would give him status and though his obedience to the law would give him placement, Jesus was challenging him by saying, go ahead and make yourself as low as the lowest person, the common man on the street. Quit elevating yourself in your religious status and see what happens. You know, those who heard him didn't even understand all of what he was saying. His own disciples who had been traveling with him and hearing these words taught from the Sermon on the Mount to the healing of the blind, they didn't get what Jesus was getting at. Verse 23, then Yeshua said to the Talmudim or his disciples, yes, I tell you that it'll be very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And furthermore, I tell you that it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So many people have waxed eloquently as to what this means, that maybe there was a gate and maybe there was a gate called the eye of the needle and maybe a camel would have to pass through it and it would have to shed all of his baggage in order to go through it. That preach is really good, but that has nothing to do with what God is talking about. Jesus is being as sarcastic as he was when he said, don't you dare observe the speck in your brother's I when you refuse to look at the log in your own. Jesus was a very sarcastic teacher. He literally looked at those around him and said, how much, but how much longer must I suffer your unbelief? Jesus was sarcastic in his undertone. And when he said, it's easier for the camel to get through the eye of a needle, he was literally holding up to them a picture of a sewing needle and saying that a camel can't force itself through that needle, meaning that it was an impossibility. The disciples heard this in verse 25 when the Talmudim or the disciples heard this, they were utterly amazed. Then who, they asked, can be saved? Because according to their context, this guy was rich and he had followed all of the law. And if he's not getting into heaven, what is our plight? We're walking with you. We're serving with you. We're doing all the religious observances that we're called to do, Jesus. Many of us feel that way. We see a religious leader fall from grace and we wonder, God, if they fell, what, what's going to be our plight? God, if they fell from grace, then how are we going to make it? We wonder at times when we see people that we put up on a pedestal, a pastor or a leader, and they fall and we wonder, God, can we ever really have the assurance of heaven or salvation here on earth? Verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, humanly, it's impossible. 
But with God, everything is possible. Kepha or Peter replied, look, we have left everything and followed you. So what will we have? I love Peter. I love the nature of Peter. He's the bold one. He's the guy that takes the sword and tries to knock someone's head off and slips and just cuts his ear a little bit. This is the guy who gets crazed when they're going to come after his master. This is the guy that puts his foot in his mouth more than all, the, all of the other disciples and he gets upset in this moment. He says, this guy who's following the traditions of our old ancestral religion, this guy who's followed all of the laws, this guy who's proved positive that God's hand is on him by way of his blessing, the fact that he's rich, he's not going to enter heaven. We've already done it, Jesus. We've already given up all of these things. What about us? What about me, Lord? What about me? This is what Jesus is pointing to, the core of the conversation that he would have an opportunity to change the focus of those who are around him, that he would have an opportunity to change the course of thinking of those who thought they understood what it was to gain heaven. This story, like almost all of the stories where Jesus is confronted with the idea of money, is almost never about money. This story, this phrase, go sell everything that you have, go sell it all, give it to the poor, then you'll gain riches in heaven, then come follow me. This concept, this hard phrase, this hard statement is so much about this man's heart and the heart of those who Jesus was around every single day. It's so much more about that than it was ever about money. If you have your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 10 and verse 29. This, we're going to pick up the rest of the story in one of the other places where the story is read because I like a little bit of what Jesus does to clarify the context so Jesus is always teaching. These aren't necessarily books of a theologian. They are books of a storyteller. But Jesus is always teaching us something, and he's trying to teach us something of high value. In verse 29, Jesus says, Yes, I tell you that there is one who has left, there is no one, I'm sorry, who has left house, brothers, sisters, mother, uh, mother, father, children, or field for my sake, and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundred times over now, and if you have your Hebrew Bible, you'll read it like this. It says, Olam Hazeh, in this age, the Olam Hazeh, now in the Olam Hazeh, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, with persecution, and in the Olam Chaba, the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Jesus closes his teaching of rearranging their concept of the afterlife, of what brings them into God's kingdom, of their assurance of heaven, that they have clicked all the T's and dotted all the I's. Jesus reassures them with a new phrase. He brings back to their remembrance from their Hebrew school a context of heaven to earth. He refreshes the idea of the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He uses a two-word phrase to solidify this new way of looking at life. He uses for the first phrase, olam hazeh, this present age. It's always represented in the Hebrew text as darkness, wickedness, sin. It's ruled by physical laws and the laws of the world. It's bound by dimension, time, and space. He contrasts that with this idea of the olam haba, eternity, light, peace, joy, perfection, no longer bound by natural law, no longer bound by the law of this world. What would it look like if we understood what Jesus was honestly teaching? 
Not just this young man who had an opportunity to be a disciple, but decided to skate because he couldn't see living life from a different perspective, but his disciples as well. What would it look like if we were to mix the spirituality of the olam haba, the eternal life, with the physicality of the olam hazeh? If we were to take from heaven and bring it to earth, Jesus is solidifying a core message that he preached all 33 years, well, the three years he was preaching on this earth. He exemplified it in his life, his character, and his duty, that he was the embodiment of heaven to earth. In those 600 plus rules that the Jews had to live by, there's a particular rule, there's a mitzvah that says this, you can't mix linen and wool. Leviticus chapter 19, 19, it talks about the idea that these rules were established so that God's people would understand who he is and to reflect the nature of God, his purity, his holiness, to reflect that he is good, that he is pure. He said, I want you to live this way. Don't mix fibers. Don't mix linen and wool in any of the garments, in any of the garments that you wear. So how does God, who is supposed to fulfill all of the law, even in his son Jesus, how is he going to reveal the truth behind all of these 600 plus statements. The reality is the rule is not for God. The rule reveals God. When Jesus changes the rule book and says, you've understood that eternal life comes like this. You are blessed of God and it shows you are prosperous. You are rich. You are someone of substance. You are someone of stature. You are someone of status. And on top of that, you do all the religious exercises to keep yourself in God's good graces that you've done everything you can to live the mitzvah, the good deeds, the law. Jesus takes that idea, flips it on its head, and says at its very base, why don't you bring yourself down to the lowest of the low, erase your title, erase your security, and come to me with no baggage. Jesus is literally telling him that if you'll come to me with no baggage, I will reverse course. I will show you what it looks like for heaven to come to earth. And anything that you've given up here in heaven or here on earth will be granted to you a hundred times over, not just in heaven, but here. That I'll be true to my word. That I will show up and show off in your life in ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. That I will take heaven and literally pour it into human vessel, you, that human vessel, and disperse through you the presence and power of God. If you'll get away from your religious traditions and understandings, I will open up what it looks like to bring heaven to earth. And this is our call today. That in this story, the story of the rich young ruler, this idea of giving up all of our possessions and selling them, giving them to the poor, that it had nothing to do with a socialist Jesus. In fact, it had nothing to do with money. It had everything to do with reshaping the way we see the world. That if we will take away the religious ideas, the religious junk, the thoughts that we have that are just bound to religious tradition, if we'll cast those down and throw those away and learn to live heaven on earth, we will experience a hundredfold anything that we could have possibly given up. If you have to give up family because they can't see you making the trek from who you used to be into the remade nature of Jesus Christ that you confess as Jesus is Lord. Don't worry about it. There are plenty of people in the church who would love to be your brother, your sister, your mother, your father. When my mom first got saved, one of the things she would do to their pastor here in Moline was walk up to him and call him father because she was of a Catholic background. 
That's how she related to clergy. And I remember him as a little boy. I remember him telling her, I'm not, I'm not a father and I'm not your father, but I sure would love to be. It melted her heart. And as a little boy, it melted my heart. This old man standing there and understanding that through Jesus, we don't have to live by religious tradition, but even if it comes out a little bit, we can reframe it in a new context. I'm not father because of title, but I would love to be your dad in the faith. We forget that the whole idea of Christianity is erasing religious context and tradition, getting down to bare bones. Who is Jesus right here, right now? How did heaven come to earth in your life? Through religious tradition, you have to earn your healing. Through religious tradition, you have to earn your place at the table. Through religious tradition, it'll tell you all of the things that are wrong with you, all of the things that are broken in your life. Everywhere you've messed up, you will be waiting for our God to look like Zeus with a lightning bolt ready to strike you down the moment you mess up. But if we understand heaven on earth, if we understand the age to come here in the present now, we understand we have a God who's loving, who's merciful, who's strong and mighty, and that whatever we're going through, whatever faces us in life, that he has a way of reversing course and changing the narrative. The real story of the rich young ruler is all about heaven to earth. Are we willing? Are we willing to do as Jesus commanded this young man, to get our religious garbage and baggage out of the way and allow heaven to come to earth? Or are we so beholden are we so beholden to our religious structure that we just can't let go? I don't know how many times God has asked of us, of us, Lori and I, specifically, get away from your religious tradition. And we went, uh, Jesus, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I like it, Lord. One of the ways that God asked us to get away from our religious tradition was for us to buy a building with a steeple on it. That sounds backwards, doesn't it? I was so sure we would never have a building with steeple and stained glass that the moment a woman who in prayer, who was in our church, came to me and said, listen, I've seen a vision of what the church looks like. It's white. It's got a steeple. It's got... I said, the devil is a liar. I, know what... I didn't say it to her, but I thought, what have you been smoking, girl? It ain't legal yet. That was a couple years ago. I had to apologize the first Sunday we're in this building because there's a big white steeple in front of us or on top of the Podium, that's where the lightning is, right? That's where the power comes. Hallelujah. That's where the anointment comes. <laughs> Just nothing but stained glass windows. And I had to get away from my religious expectation that God, you're done, you are through with these old religious buildings. He said, not that one and not for you. Often, we are confronted with the idea of what will we give up? What religious context will we give up so that Jesus will be Lord? Because there is a constant in the Bible. There is a constant of his nature. He is preeminent. He is either first or he is nothing. He cannot be second in any area of your life. You cannot withhold him as secondary. Can't in your finances say that, God, I give you charge. I give you charge over my financial future and say, but after I pay my bills, after I make sure I pay my groceries, after I make sure I get save a little money for a vacation, whatever's left over, then you can have that. No, he says 10% off the top. It's common. It's, 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 it's steady for every single person, every one of us in here. 10% is 10%, no matter how much you make. He says that because he has to be preeminent. What he is saying to this young man is very simple. If I'm not first, I'm nothing. 
If I'm not first, I can't bring into your life the olam haba, into your olam hazeh. I can't bring heaven to earth if I'm not first in your life. This morning, I want to challenge you. Is he first? This hard statement of Jesus is all about the concept of preeminence. Is he first or is he second or third or fourth? Is he behind your wife or your spouse when they nag and want? Do you put him on the shelf and on the back burner and just do what they ask? Is he behind your kids? Do they get up in the morning and take all of your time before you have even a moment to roll over and say, thank you, Jesus, for giving me another day? Even if you say it in a half-sleepy voice before you have your, your caffeine, it's all right. I do it every morning. Thank you, Jesus. I'll get up in a minute. Hit the snooze for me, Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. I feel, this, I feel your pain. But the fact is he has to be first and preeminent. He has to be first or he is nothing. This morning, challenge yourself as you go through the day. Is he first? Mark out the moments in your life. Is he first? Not is religious tradition first. Not is our religious assumption first. Is he, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is he first in your life? Amen? Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you that as we study, Holy Spirit, you come, you invigorate, you ignite, you explode the word into our hearts, that it becomes that rhema word, it becomes alive in us. So today, God, we ask that you would start to show us areas where you're not first where you're not preeminent, where you are not the first thing we think of. God, show us areas where you are second, you are put off, and you are on a different back burner. God, bring us to a place where we understand you will have your way or you will have no space whatsoever. God, come, come, take over our life. Bring heaven to earth in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.